0: The following is a production of The People of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Well, good morning again. Uh, My name is Josh. I'm not Kyle. They had to, as as Brad said, go to the bullpen last night and call in the Southpaw because Kyle got sick. Uh, So he was running a pretty high fever yesterday and not feeling very well this morning. So you guys keep him in your prayers. So as we go through uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21, um, if I look like I'm a deer caught in a headlight in some spots, it might be because I am. <laughs> but uh, we're going to move through this together and see what Paul is writing to us in the church uh, in, in, uh, in Romans. Romans. So if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 15, and we are going to look at verses 14 through 21. We looked at last week, Uh, Paul is kind of taking us through uh, how Christ has has welcomed us, and Jack had this great line. He said, the gospel is the most inclusive, exclusive message in the world. The gospel is the most inclusive, exclusive message in the world. What does that mean? What does that look like? How is, is Christ exclusive? He's exclusive in that his his call was exclusively to us. He's not calling us to anything other than himself. He's, as he says in John 14:6 that, that there's no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life. That he's calling us to see the world through his lens and no one else's. And yet Christ is inclusive in that He's included, in it, and His call includes all people. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." And so, Jesus' His call does not require us to clean ourselves up. In fact, Paul says He cleans us up. His call doesn't require us to know all things; rather, He instructs us in His Word. His call is a call to come to him. Man, woman, child, race, socioeconomic, Democrat, Republican, anarchist, married, single, divorced, whoever you are, whatever your past, wherever you come from, he bids come. Come to me, those who are tired, those who are weary, those who are laboring, come to me, let me give you rest rich or poor, slave or free. Whether you're a, a drunk, an addict, an adulterer, whoever you are and wherever you come from, let me give you rest. Come to me. And with that in mind this morning, with Christ's call to us this morning, I want us to look at this passage. I want us to move into this passage, understanding what Christ has called us to, what he has put before us, understanding what that means in our lives. And so if you're here this morning and, and you've, you've heard the gospel, you've heard uh, people maybe have preached to you, or they may have witnessed to you, or you're here because somebody invited you to be here. You didn't really want to be here this morning, but somebody invited you to come and be a part of what was happening here this morning. Uh, here's what I'm asking you to do, is just open your heart and open your mind to hear something today. And I would challenge you to listen with the intent to expect something. And then leave. And you can leave with the same thoughts that you had this morning. I just ask you for this next few moments that you would just open your heart to hear from God's word. And expect something. Understanding what Christ has put before us, we must tell the story of Christ. Christ. The exclusive message that there is no other God, there is no other name, there is no other path that offers salvation. The inclusive message that all are welcome to the one who saves, regardless of how dirty you think of yourself or how others think of you. Regardless of what you know or don't know, regardless of your gender, your age, your race, your socioeconomic background. Come to the God who keeps his promises. The God who promised Eve that her descendant would reverse the curse of sin. The God who promised Abraham that every nation on earth would be blessed through his descendants. The God who promised David that his throne would never sit empty. The God who promised his disciples that three days after his death he would rise. The God who keeps his promises even to those who turn their back on him even to those who who often reject his promises, who don't believe his promises. He is a God who keeps promises. He's the God who is faithful. He's the God who promised the world that he is coming again to make all things new. What an amazing hope we have in Christ. that he is the great reverser of the enemy's schemes, the one who gives us hope And in response to receiving this hope, we should be letting this hope flow out of us. So here's what Paul's trajectory is. That hope leads to evangelism, which is gospel storytelling. So we're going to look in the passage today that Jesus is the great reverser and that Jesus is the focus of our evangelism. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. This is where we see that Jesus is the great reverser. Romans 15 verse 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So did you hear what Paul just said about the church? Look at that. He's writing to the church. He's writing to a group of believers in Rome and you hear what he just said. Now, again, this is not a church that Paul knows. He hasn't met these people personally. He's heard of them. This is not a church that he's planted. If you've been with us, you've heard us say this almost every single week. But he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are what? Full of goodness. He calls the church full of goodness. The word full that's used here is the same Greek word that's used when the disciples are fishing with Jesus. Jesus. And their nets are, are, are full. It says they're full that they begin to break. They're overflowing with fish. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is that goodness is overflowing out of you. That's what he's saying about the church. He's saying goodness is overflowing out of you. You are full of goodness. How is goodness overflowing out of them? Well, how has Paul been instructing them over the last 15 chapters? What has he been calling them to? He's been calling them away from disunity. He's been calling them away from discord. He's been calling them away from sin. And if they're actively participating in the gospel, transforming their life, if they're actively participating in that, if they're actively participating in the instruction that Paul is giving them, he's saying, goodness has got to be flowing out of you. But how is this church... How is Mars Hill full of human beings who are sinful, who are selfish, overflowing with goodness? Well, Jesus is the great subverter of the enemy's plans. He's the great saboteur of the enemy's works, He's the reverser of sin. In fact, The gospel is the story of Christ's subversion to the enemy's perversion of God's very good creation. Think of how we got to fullness of goodness or full of goodness in the book of Romans. What did Paul say in the very beginning? What was he saying to the church in Romans chapter 1? He says, we are unregenerate, unrighteous, selfish sinners prior to Christ. That's what we look like. Before Christ, we are unregenerate, unrighteous, selfish. He says in verse 18 of of chapter 1, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We deny general revelation. We deny that God speaks through his creation. We are futile in our thinking. We are foolish in our hearts. We are idolaters. We are impure, dishonest. We exchange the truth for lies. We give ourselves to dishonorable passions. We corrupt our sexuality. This is what Paul says we look like before Christ. Romans 1, 29 through 31 says, "'They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, "'evil, covetousness, malice. "'They are full of envy, murder, strife, "'deceit, maliciousness. "'They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, "'insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He goes on, he says, they give approval to sin. They're judgmental, they're self-seeking, they're narcissistic, they're selfish, they're disobedient to parents, and they obey unrighteousness. That's encouraging. Thanks, Paul. Let's just stop there and leave feeling great about ourselves. And he says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one person does good. So we move from not even one person does good to you are full of goodness. How? How can Paul move from one extreme to the other? That none of you are capable of doing any good. None of you are good. And 15 chapters later, oh church, you are full of goodness. In fact, goodness is flowing out of you. How? Again, Paul was instructing them away from disunity, away from discord, away from sin. How? Are they full of goodness? Because Jesus. Because the greatest story of reversal ever told the gospel. This is who you were. And then Christ entered in. By his righteousness, by his death, he reversed. And you're full of goodness. Why? Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. We can't do this without the gospel. We can try. And we can look great on the outside for a little while. But the gospel has to change us. The gospel has to move in us. And only Christ can undo in us what sin has destroyed. Paul is instructing them away from disunity. So look at us, church. If, if Christ is not changing us, we can look unified on the outside, but eventually that's going to fall apart because there is no foundation to it except us. He's moving uh, the church away from discord. We can look like we all get along really well. We can smile when we walk in the door. We can shake one another's hand. We can hand each other a cup of coffee, open the door for one another and leave. But eventually our hearts will be exposed. And he's calling them away from sin. And every single one of us in this room are really good at pretending that we're sinless. And many of us can walk into this room and pretend like we have no struggles. But it's only Christ who can change us. Because if Christ is not changing us, our hearts will be exposed. So Paul says in verse 15 through 16, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. The gospel of God. The story of God. This is, this is what this is. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the gospel of God. This is the story of God. This is telling us what God has done in the world by sending his one and only son to come and die on the cross. To live a sinless life. To die on the cross and to rise again three days later. To redeem the world of its brokenness and its sinfulness and its selfishness and its destruction. This is the gospel of God. And he says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We need reminding of this gospel. We need daily reminding of the most inclusive, exclusive message of saving grace. That message of hope given to us by the word of God himself. There's a popular um, line that, that, that's gone around over the last several years is preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. Even if you're a follower of Christ, wake up every single day. Find moments throughout the day to remind yourself of the gospel. Why? Because we need to remember what Christ has done for us. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of the value that we have in the sight of God. It reminds us that we are redeemed, forgiven, Set free. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, moments throughout the day. Remind yourself of what Christ has done for you. This is the only power that can change us. There is no other power. Politics can't save us, morality can't save us. Psychology, religion, these things cannot save us. Because Paul wrote in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he goes on in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Jesus has reversed the effects of sin. Jesus has reversed the effects of sin. What was the effects of sin? Death, cursing. Paul writes in Romans 1, again, you are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, malice, are you full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness? Are you gossips, church? Are you slanderers? Are you haters of God? Are you insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil? Are you disobedient to your parents? Are you foolish? Are you faithless? Are you heartless? Are you ruthless? This was us, but Christ, having peace us back together in his image by the Holy Spirit so that you are filled with all manner of righteousness, so that you are good, so that you are content, so that you are loving. You become full of goodwill. You love. You have peace. You know the truth. You're gentle. You're an encourager, an uplifter. You're a lover of God. You're modest, you're meek, you're humble. You're an inventor of good. You're obedient to your parents. You are wise. You are full of faith, full of heart. You are full of compassion. This is what Christ does for us. This is the reverse of the effects of sin. So Paul says, are there none righteous? No, not one. But God declares you righteous through Christ. Are you servants of unrighteousness? Christ frees you to obey righteousness. Do you believe the great lie? Christ teaches you to exchange that lie for truth. Are you futile in thinking, foolish in heart? God gives you a renewed mind and a new heart. Do you suppress the truth? Christ bids you to spread the truth. And having been transformed by the power of the gospel, having Christ reverse these effects of sin in our lives. Because Romans 1 describes who we are in our sin, it describes what sin has made us, every one of us. But then as we move through and we see what Christ has done and reversed, Paul can say, but you are full of goodness. And having been transformed by the power of the gospel, he bids you of what Jesus says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus, your great high priest, has given you a priestly duty to represent God to the world and minister to those through the gospel whom the Father is calling home. And this is why Paul says this priestly service of the gospel of God. Obviously, Paul is not literally a priest In this instance, metaphorically, he's offering the Gentiles to God as a sacrifice. He's not literally putting the uh, Gentiles on the altar, although there may have been some Jews that would have liked to see that happen. He's not putting the Gentiles and laying them on the altar and sacrificing their lives. Instead, Paul is describing the true intention behind this priesthood to teach people about God, to represent God to the people, to bring people to worship God to make people lovers of God, to watch God sanctify people in order that they would serve and love him. This is what Paul is calling us to. This is, this is what he says. This is your priestly duty to teach people about God, to represent God to the people that the world desperately longs to know their creator. And you can represent who he is To them. So in this sense, Jesus is the great missions motivator to which Paul now turns. In Romans fifteen, verse seventeen through twenty, he says this. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So there's a couple of things worth mentioning here because Paul says a lot of things in in that phrase. First, he says that he's proud of his work. Now that seems really weird because Paul has already talked about boasting in Romans chapter three. He mentions it in other places like Galatians of of what boasting is and boasting in his own things because he's already told us, I have nothing to boast about. He tells us in Philippians, I can look at all my past works, uh, everything that I've done. I've been a pretty righteous guy. I have nothing to boast in because all of that is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Uh, So Paul has already addressed this idea uh, of being proud of his work and what boasting looks like. He doesn't mean that he's proud of his own work, but what Christ has accomplished through him, what Christ has done in him, In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He's saying, God has moved. The gospel has gone forth. And I've done my best to get out of the way. I've done my best to follow where Christ has led me so that his gospel would go before me. He's not boasting in what he's done. He's boasting in what Christ has done. Do you take joy in what Christ accomplishes through you? Do you see what Christ does through you? I think too often we think of Christ's commands like military orders. Get it done and Just be happy that you get to be included. Do this and just be glad I'm asking you. But Paul takes joy in this in his gospel. In 2 Timothy 2 6, he says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He's saying, Allow God to use you and recognize what God is doing in and through you. He is using you, he's using you for his gospel. Do you take joy in what Christ does through you? Second, he says uh, this idea of building on someone else's foundation. Now, Paul's goal was to, to take the gospel to every known part of the world. Acts reveals that Paul's strategy was to concentrate his missionary activity on the great urban centers of his day. Places like Rome. Rome. And he had accomplished that goal in the Eastern Mediterranean world. And from that point on, he intended to move to the Western reaches of the world. So Paul's ambition had always been to preach the gospel in places where Christ was not known. He would rather not build on someone else's foundations, not because of some peculiar pride that he had um, <clears throat> that would encourage him to go on in his own, but because of an intense desire to reach the known world as quickly as possible. He wanted to get the gospel to every place in the known world as quickly as possible, as quickly as he could. That's one of the reasons why we see in the beginning of Romans that he's relieved to see that the gospel has, is in Rome, that there's a church, a healthy church residing in Rome because Rome was the center of the world at this time, the most influential city in the world at this time. He knew once the gospel got to Rome, it would quickly go to other places in the world. And Paul longed to go to Rome. He longed to go to Spain. And we we can see this in in the opening chapters of Romans. But the task God laid in front of him never allowed him to get to Spain. He remained faithful to the call that God gave him. What has Christ called you to? And are you being faithful to it? What has Christ placed in front of you? And are you being faithful to it? How quickly do we give up? How quickly do we pursue our own ambitions and needs over the needs of others? Specifically their need for the gospel. I, I can speak personally in my own life that there have been times where God has placed me in a position or a situation where It just, it wasn't fulfilling my grand hopes and dreams. And so I was always looking for the next thing. What's next? Where does God have me? Going. And I wasn't being faithful to where I was. I wasn't being faithful to where God had me in that moment. Are you being faithful to where God has you? Are you constantly looking for the next thing as if where you are now doesn't really matter? Paul had desires of where he wanted to be. Paul had dreams of where he wanted to go. And for whatever reason, God did not have him going there. And Paul laid aside his dreams to carry out the call of Christ that, had, that was placed on his life. He laid aside his ambitions. He laid aside himself. Say, God, where you have me is where I'll be faithful. I believe that verse 18 is the point of this passage where we see that Jesus is the great mission's motivator. He says in verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So here's the trajectory Paul has been headed. The accomplishment of Christ through word and deed. Through preaching, through the sharing of the gospel, through living it out and serving like Christ. I want us to to note that these are two distinct actions. There's word and deed. And often our temptation is to to lump these two together. What's the the famous quote that we have? Um, Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. You've heard that before? St. Francis of Sissy. He never actually said that. That's been falsely attributed to him. I, I, I mean, let's be honest, the first time that we saw it on somebody's Facebook post, we shared it because it was like, "That's awesome." <laughs> yeah. There's two problems with it. One, Francis never said it, and two, it's wrong. Preaching, preaching the gospel without words does not make sense. The word evangelism comes from the word euangelizo, which literally means to declare the good news. Now imagine if we were trying to share some good news by action alone. Have you ever played charades? I hate games. One of the least favorite things about me that my wife has. She loves playing games. I hate games. Um, but I, I used to watch this uh, show. I can't even remember what it's called. Alan Thick was the host uh, after um, Growing Pains. And he, uh, it was this thing where they had to, to draw things and, 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 you know, they couldn't say words or anything. They could only draw things. Imagine having to share good news with people without using words, like playing a game of charades. It's hard. It's tough. Imagine if the landing on the moon, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, they just had to... Show that with not giving us any explanation of what was happening. There's some people that would think that that's a hoax and it was staged, right? There are people in the world that do that. Imagine if you had a vaccine for smallpox and you had to explain to someone that, hey, we have this vaccine for smallpox, you have smallpox, but you can't use any words to say it. They'd have no idea why you're trying to give them this shot. They have no idea why you're trying to medicate them with something. They don't know what it's for or why. It's impossible to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words because it's always necessary to use words to share the story of the word of God, my flesh. And this freaks some of us out. Because that, that, that quote that's falsely attributed to Francis is comforting. We don't have to talk about our faith. We don't have to witness to people. Let's just be nice and open the doors for them and buy their cup of coffee in Starbucks. There's a guy uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was in the drive-thru at Starbucks and the guy in front of me uh, didn't know me. I didn't know him as far as I knew. And, and he bought the cup, my cup of coffee in front of me. You know, after you drive off, you're like, man, I should have bought the person's coffee in front behind me. But and I guess I'm not as considerate as that guy. <laughs> and I tried to catch up with him on Chillinger Road. <laughs> That's a joke in itself. But he caught a red light, so I was able to. And... Um, and I caught up with him. I didn't recognize him. Here's all I could do: raised up the coffee, said. <laughs> That's all we could do to communicate. And honestly, if I was a lost person, that was his attempt to share the gospel. I didn't get it. I'm very thankful that that guy bought my cup of coffee. It saved me three bucks. But we love those words: preach the gospel, and when necessary. Use words because it saves us from rejection. It saves us from looking foolish. It saves us from difficult questions that they might ask. And we become the focus of Christ rather than Christ. And in evangelism, we must take our eyes off of ourselves. We must forget temporary discomfort. The fears that come with preaching the gospel. So that we may place our eyes, and the eyes of those that we're witnessing to, on Christ. In the hopes that we would gain a brother or a sister for eternity. What is your focus in evangelism? Because if it's not Christ, you will miss the mark. My dad is an avid golfer and tried to teach me to play well when I was younger. And I didn't enjoy the game until I was older. And I'm just terrible now because I didn't care about the lessons that I was getting from a really good golfer. But he would always tell me this when we would go out to putt, especially when you're putting uphill. I bet my shoestring is really distracting some people. Y'all are waiting for me to trip on it, aren't you? I'm gonna take them off. Can't tell you how many times I've stepped on that shoestring today. That's why double knots are important. So my dad would teach me to putt. And when you're putting uphill, you usually don't, you know, putting uphill can be difficult. um, And so he would always tell me, you're not looking at the hole. Don't Don't look at the cup. Look past the cup. Because if your focus is the cup, when you're putting uphill, you're gonna come short, right? But if you're looking 8 inches, 12 inches, depending on how far it is, 24 inches past the cup, you'll make the mark. It's like in martial arts, if you have studied martial arts, I have not. But if you studied martial arts and you're going in to break the board, one of the things they tell you is the board is not the focus. Eight inches past the board is the focus. Because if your aim is to hit the board, you're not gonna break the board. But if your aim is to break what's eight inches behind the board, you'll break the board. (laughs) The person's face. (laughs) So aim for the person's face behind the board and you'll break the board. What is your focus in evangelism? Because if it's anything other than Christ, you're going to miss the mark. If your focus is on you and the rejection that you might have or the questions that you might not be able to answer or the fear that you might have, whatever it might be, you're going to miss the mark. If your focus is on the other person and what they might think or what they might say to other people, or how they might feel. You're going to miss the mark. Evangelism, our focus in evangelism should be Christ because it's him who saves and not us. And we need to lay aside our our momentary discomfort for the sake of the gospel because there are people around us who are desperate to hear it. When I was a senior in high school, I had a, a friend named Brendan Bourgeois. I lived in New Orleans, so Bourgeois wasn't a weird name. Brendan was a baseball player. I was a baseball player. We were both pitchers, so we got to throw together a lot and, and spend time talking, and Brendan was the guy. He was a freshman in high school, and he was dating seniors. Like, he, was, he was cool. He was what every guy wanted to be. He was well-built. Uh, he was good-looking. Uh, he had money. I mean, he had everything, And here I come walking in with my Levi's from Walmart and you know my 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 ratty shirts and really insecure about myself. A lot of lot of things I'm insecure about. I was super skinny. Uh, They called me Skeletor. Uh, Obviously, you know I still still look like it, right? 160 pounds later. So you're saying you're not 160 pounds? I'm, t- I'm not telling you. <laughs> anyway. So I was really insecure about myself. Because I thought that those things mattered. I thought money mattered. I thought uh, popularity mattered. I mean, when you're a freshman in high school, all of those things matter. All the material stuff matters. How people think of you. How, what, what you look like. All of those things matter. Doesn't really change when we're 50 or 60 years old, does it? We still think the same way. Anyway. I, um, I, I met Brennan my, my freshman year on the baseball team and, and, um, and he was very different than me. He was the party guy, he was uh, into everything and I was the FCA president. I was, you know, doing all of the opposite things uh, of what Brennan was doing and I was trying, you know, I made a decision when I was in high school because of something that somebody said to me when I was in eighth grade who called me out, who wasn't a believer, but he called me out when I was making fun of a girl uh, in front of the entire class and said, Josh, I thought you were being a Christian. Or I thought you were a Christian and, uh, and totally called me out in front of everybody. And that was a moment I decided, you know, when I go to high school, I'm going to, I'm going to try to live differently. And so I met Brennan and for four years, we, um, knew each other. We didn't get ever get really close, but we threw, uh, together, we would warm up on the baseball team and we would do all these things. And, uh, Brennan knew that I was a, a Christian. He would tease me about it some when I would throw the ball to him. I'm left-handed. And apparently, a lot of times when you're left-handed and you throw the ball hard, the ball begins to zigzag, and he would call that the Jesus spin. Like, like Jesus was behind it or something. Uh, and he would he was doing that, just tongue in cheek, um messing with me and teasing me. And uh but but he knew that I was a Christian. And not because I ever told Brendan I was a Christian. He just knew the things that I didn't participate in, he knew what other people had said. And uh, halfway, uh, the Christmas of our, our senior year, uh, Brennan uh, overdosed on drugs and alcohol and wound up um, dying in the hospital. And uh, it was New Year's Eve. I don't have all the details laid out because I wasn't planning on sharing the story. But I remember going over to a friend's of my, friend of mine's house on New Year's Eve right after we got the word that, that Brennan had passed away, and we were going over there to shoot fireworks and stuff, and his parents uh, were, were believers and, and um, just really, really great people, and they got all of us, all of us teenagers together in the living room, and we just started praying uh, for Brennan. And in the middle of that prayer, I decided, you know what, I need, to, I need to go to the hospital. He was in a coma still at this time. I need to go to the hospital and see if I can and speak to Brennan if he's awake. We didn't know a whole lot. We just knew that he had, had passed out and hadn't woken up yet. And... Um, they weren't letting anybody in that night, and so I got up really early the next morning on New Year's Eve, uh, left from my friend's house, uh, and went over to the charity hospital in New Orleans and walked in, and I, it was not visiting hours. The nurse should not have let me in, uh, but I walked in to one of, the, one of the most scary sights I'd ever seen, and was Brennan laying in his bed in a coma, helpless, broken. This guy who, in my eyes, had it all. And now he's just moments away from death. I brought a Bible. And I left it on his bed, and and I didn't know what to do. Never been in that situation, never seen anyone in a coma. And the nurse said, you know... And I don't know if this is true or not. And I don't know if she was just trying to make me feel better. She said, but, you know, sometimes when people are in a coma, you know, studies show that they might be able to hear you. So I said, well, what's the risk? And so I began to share the gospel with Brendan. On his deathbed. Unconscious. And I walked away. Three days later, Brendan... Officially passed away. Never actually woke up from his coma. He's 18 years old. And two great things came from that. One, it gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with a lot of students who had a lot of questions when we got back to school. But two, it convicted me to the core. Because never once that I pull Brennan aside and say, let me tell you what Christ has done in me. Because I always said to myself, they'll just see my actions. They'll just see what I do. And I never stopped and used words to say, Brennan, here's why I live this way. I wasn't a perfect high school student. I was really good at pretending in high school that I didn't have a lot of problems. But I did my best to live the gospel in front of people that I knew didn't know the gospel. But I was always afraid to use words. I carried Brennan's obituary around with me for years after that in the place of where my license goes in my wallet. Just every time I opened my wallet, it reminded me. Not as some morbid thing, it just reminded me the gospel is most important. church, the gospel is most important. Our focus must be on Christ. With evangelism fro- flowing freely from our foundation in the gospel. And how we have been changed by the love of Christ. Francis of Assisi did actually say something in line with Paul's desire to preach the gospel in word and deed. He said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. What does he mean? Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. But do both. Make sure you're preaching the gospel to yourself. That you're reminding yourself, I need to live in light of what Christ has done. And I need to share that gospel with the people around me. We all have a priestly service, just as Paul did, to represent God's sanctification of his people. Are we walking in a way that is continually pulling us more towards Christ likeness? Are we walking in a way that continues to build our character to become more like Christ? Or do our actions, our deeds, our thoughts slowly chip away at our character? When we sin, Do we run away from the cross or do we run to it? We often run away out of fear. But Christ is calling us toward it in repentant confidence. When we run away from the cross, we miss the good news of the resurrection. And we miss the opportunity to teach people about his love and his mercy, and his grace. Church, we're human. And we're broken. And Christ is not calling us to sin. He's calling us away from sin. But if we fail, which is what Paul says, if you fail, you have an advocate in Christ Jesus. And in those moments of failure and you can run to the cross with confidence in what Christ has done, it points to the world around you, the grace and the mercy and the compassion that Jesus also has on them. That even in our failure and our repentance, we can preach the gospel. But most importantly, and what we see in verse 21 is that the priesthood was pointing forward to Christ himself. He is our, our great high priest, our sacrificial lamb, our blood of atonement, our sanctifier. And people must hear about Christ and his work. So he says in verse 21, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul is highlighting the need to go where the gospel has not been preached, not to build on another's foundation. Why? Because Isaiah says, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. At at a meeting uh, of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, there was a newly ordained minister by the name of William Carey, who stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said this to him. Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. This didn't sit well with Kerry. And he was impressed with the early Moravian missionaries and was increasingly dismayed at his fellow Protestants and their lack of missions interest. And so he wrote uh, an article. He wrote uh, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. That's a long, long title for the Times-Picayune. Times-Picayune, nobody knows what that is. (laughs) New York Times. He argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. And he rebuked fellow believers of, of his day for ignoring it. He said this, multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. And before William Carey left with his family to India, he preached a sermon that was entitled Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now a lot of people have asked and argued and debated that what William Carey says here is not biblical. Should we expect great things from God? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 3:20 20 through21, "Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul says that, that God can do far more than we can ask or think of. And he can do this abundantly. So, God is able to do great things. Should we attempt great things for God? Well, Paul writes in this passage so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Should we attempt great things for God? Paul did. We should expect God to do something. And we should expect God to change hearts. Like there are people in our lives where we can look at them and say, there is no way this person is changing. There's no way this person can be transformed. It is not impossible for God. God can do great things And we should risk for the sake of the gospel. Risk our reputation. Risk our resources. Risk our comfort for the sake of the gospel. We should attempt great things for God. What is God calling you to? And what fears are standing in your way? Maybe it is right where you are and he's just calling you to remain faithful. It is no coincidence that Paul chose Isaiah 52 to end this passage because it begins with the gospel. Look at what he says, Isaiah 52.1, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. But it also ends with the story of the gospel told hundreds of years in advance. Look at Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human uh, resemblance and his form, beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told, them, not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So we see in 51, the beginning of the gospel. And we see in verse 13 through 15, Christ's resurrection, his crucifixion, his atonement God is telling the gospel story he's always been telling the gospel story and you are in his story will you tell it to those who haven't heard will you be a part of what God is doing around our community and around the world I don't think it's any coincidence that Jack has had a heart over these last couple of months to call us to evangelism. To encourage us to do what Christ has already called us to. To get involved, not only in what God is doing in this church, but get involved in what God is doing around you and your family, at work, at school wherever you find yourself. See what he's doing around you. On August 30th, we're going to have a worship night. And part of that worship night is to let you know what Mars Hill is a part of around the community and around the world. We want to let you know what God is doing through you. We want to let you know how you can be involved in what God is doing And our ministries and our partners next door to us. In this neighborhood. In our city. And in other parts of the world. So there's going to be a missions emphasis that night. And I encourage you to make plans to come and hear what God is doing and how you can be a part of it. Because there are going to be opportunities. I'd encourage you to be a part of that seminar that we're doing in September. Sharing Jesus without freaking out. I love the title of that because, honestly, that's evangelism for me. I I freak out. I don't want to know, how can I share the gospel, the most important piece of my story, with the people around me? Not some program, not some acronym, but through normal conversations with people who are desperate to hear it. And maybe you're here this morning and you haven't surrendered. Maybe you're that person that from the beginning you were invited here, you have no idea why you're here. Or maybe you've heard the gospel preached to you several times but you just haven't surrendered to it. Here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. Whatever is standing in your way, whatever is keeping you from coming to the cross, set it aside. Whether it's guilt or shame, whether it's logic, how could Christ do this for me? Whatever it might be, surrender to the cross of Christ this morning. Because wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, whoever you are, He's bidding you come. Come to me and find rest. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you entered into human history to redeem your people. And that it is through the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before you full of goodness, redeemed, redeemed, Free. So, God, for those that are here this morning that have not surrendered to your gospel, that have not surrendered their lives on the altar of Christ. God may today that be the day of salvation. And may you begin to transform their hearts to make them more like you. And may they leave this place sharing what you have done. God, for us as a church, forgive us where we've gotten too comfortable. I know that our staff has been challenged that maybe maybe there's a lot of things around us that have just made us too comfortable. And you've called us to set ourselves aside for the sake of the gospel. God, may that overflow into the church. May we challenge one another. May we encourage one another. And may we leave this place with our hands held high in worship. May our lives boldly proclaim the gospel to the people around us. And may our voices do the same. May we wake up each morning remembering who you are and what you've done. And may we commit each day to live life in light of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for redeeming us. And we are free men and women because of what Christ has done.